Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Synergy Cast. This is the first episode of season two, and I am honored to introduce you all to Dr. Brabjot Singh, who is a Sikh activist and educator. He joins me today for a conversation where we unpack what is going on with the farmers' protests in India and the larger Sikh genocide. We also discuss how the current political climate impacts the mental health and well-being of Punjabi Sikhs around the world, and ways that you can get involved to learn more and join the cause. I want to put a content warning out there that we do discuss some very heavy topics in today's episode, such as suicide, genocide, state terrorism, and police brutality. So please utilize that self-care while listening and take breaks if needed. If you or a loved one is suffering and needs help, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's 800-273-8255, or you can visit their website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. In the episode notes, you can find a bunch of resources like Dr. Prabhjot Singh's Instagram, which is at underscore underscore Prabhjot Singh, his Twitter at Dr. Singh with two H's. Also, you'll find a bunch of more Instagram accounts to follow that I personally have found very helpful in learning more about the topic we're discussing today with the farmers' protests and the farmers' revolution. Also in the episode notes, you'll find more resources like a petition that you can sign as well as a few places that you can donate to. If you are willing and able and have the means, please consider donating to these organizations because they're doing some great work and really, really could benefit from the financial support if you are willing and able. All right, everyone, that's it for the intro. I hope you all enjoy listening to the episode. And thank you so much to Dr. Prabhjot Singh for sitting down with us today and sharing your insight. All right, everyone, welcome back to Synergy Cast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Prabhjot Singh. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just really grateful that we're sitting down and having a conversation on this very relevant and important issue. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And I know that you are a sick activist and you use your social media a lot to spread the truth and awareness because there is a lot of false information out there, which we will dive into a little bit later throughout the episode. But before we get started, what else would you like to share about yourself to the listeners? I've become more involved in Sikh activism from a young age. I've grew up in a family and in a background where family has been subject to persecution by the Indian government. So it was a part of my life uh, at a very young age. And so I've been involved in whatever capacity I could be, and then I continued to get my education. So I'm currently, um, I received my doctorate in educational leadership. So I work in the education sector within in my professional career and i see a lot of parallels from kind of the racial inequities we see within that uh, within the education system and then transfer that over to kind of the persecution discrimination and segregation that we see within the indian system as well so that's something that i've been very vocal on uh, throughout my life um, and especially now with the farmers protests it's been amplified Yeah, definitely. I didn't even know that about you, that you were studying education or like in that field. But now that you shared that, I can definitely see that through your social media, the way you like inform and educate people on what's going on. I can definitely see the correlation with that. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then why is it important for people to be aware about what we're discussing today? It's important for a couple of reasons. Number one being caring about social causes beyond yourself, whether it's racial segregation in America or whether it's a genocide occurring in India um, or around the world, really. It's important for us as fellow humans to give that respect to other humans. Number two, it affects us almost every citizen in the U.S. on a daily basis, there's an active suppression going on by the larger social media platforms. The Mark Zuckerbergs and the Instagrams and the WhatsApps and the Facebooks of the world will muzzle your voice whenever possible. And as we had our voices muzzled speaking about the farmers' protests, we began to dig a little bit deeper and it, it turns out that Facebook is the largest investor in geo platforms, which is owned by a billionaire in India who is set to directly benefit from these farmer bills being passed. Um, in 2015, the prime minister of India was welcomed into Facebook headquarters, despite um, a human record, a human rights record of, you know, a massacre of thousands of people within his state that has been hidden through changing judges and a manipulation of the judicial system. So it affects every person, getting back to your question, it affects every person on a daily basis, knowing that if you want to post selfies and you want to talk about, you know, what you had for dinner or how great your birthday was, you're free to share that uh, to an unlimited extent. But the moment you start to talk about social causes and anything that genuinely matters to humanity, that is now being manipulated and it's being suppressed actively by the billionaire class here in America and it's tied to the billionaire class internationally. Definitely, yeah, thank you for speaking on that. And I know we're gonna dive deeper into the media and their role and everything that we're speaking about today later on in this conversation. But I really like that you brought that up and brought that to the forefront, because um, I do think that's really important. And this form of suppression, even though social media is like a very modern a thing, a phenomenon, we've seen this strategic form of suppression throughout history, even before social media. So this is like a repeated pattern. And now that social media is the new modern phenomenon, it's being applied to that as well. So I really like that you brought that up. Yeah, um, I think it's been going on for generations and we're seeing the latest iteration of it through a technological social media on your mobile phone type uh, atmosphere. And so the suppression continues, whether it be through suppression of media or intimidation of media or the outright buying of media companies. So this is just the latest form. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I want to start off with a little bit of background and context, especially for listeners who aren't familiar with Sikh and Punjabi culture. So just to start off, who are the Sikhs? What is Punjab? And what is their relationship to the Indian government? The Sikhs are the religious group residing primarily in Punjab, which is currently occupied by Northern India. Sikh re refers to Sikhi, which is part of a religious group, a uh, religious lifestyle. So that is Sikhs. Punjab is currently, like I mentioned, occupied by Northern India. They did have their own autonomous freedom prior to Indian independence. And they had what we call Khalsaraj, which is uh, they had their own king, they had their own military, they had their own land. But within the partition, when Pakistan got separated from India, the Sikhs of Punjab 
at that time in 1947 had established their their own land, but because of false promises and poor leadership at the time, they decided to join with India. As India had said, you guys are basically going to be a free country. We have this outline for you. And this is dating back to the to the Gandhis and the Mahatma Gandhis and that whole family. Um, so the false promises from back then is when Punjab joined with India. So this is why I continue to say Indian occupied Punjab because Punjab is in itself autonomous and so it is currently occupied by India and their relationship to the Indian government is very simply six gave up 85% of the lives required for Indian independence they gave up upwards of 90% of the life imprisonments required for Indian independence however in the Western world, it's a narrative set by the Indian government that it's a very peace-loving and it was a peaceful protest and that's what got the British to leave. And the truth is very different from that. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi is on Indian currency. He's propagated as a symbol of nonviolence. Himself is very problematic when you dive into his history and his kind of views on African-Americans, his views on women, just his, his history and all that. But so a sick relationship to the Indian government in involves sacrificing life and limb and imprisonment for the independence of a country which had at that time stated that Punjab will be its own autonomous region. But again, because of poor leadership and false promises at that time in 1947, Punjab was unable to, to kind of gain that autonomy. Until now, really, uh, the Sikh ideology is one of unity, one of equality, whether it be gender equality, whether it be sexual identity, wh whatever it might be, it's, it's equality. And how the Indian government runs is based on divisions. It's based on a division of caste. It's based on a division of wealth. It's based on a division of region, uh, of religion. Everything is kind of pitted against each other, so it's easier to rule. Let's say that you know we can inflict or we can impose our rule on this community because we've already divided them from the larger set of communities. So this is why there continues to be a tussle and back and forth and a genocide between the Indian government and Sikhs, and it's because the Sikh ideology is the principal opposition to the Indian government's ideology. So it's in the Indian government's best interest to gain that control over India to persecute the Sikhs and commit a genocide against the Sikhs because their ideology is so completely the opposite of theirs. So that's what we've continued to see an active genocide, ethnocide through different means of Sikhs in Punjab. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for laying out that context. I think that was like very helpful and also, I really want to highlight the point you made. I think this is like super important for context is the origins of Sikhi, and I'm just starting to learn more about it. It's a religion that's founded off of that safe space, kind of, because there was so much divide. And we could dive into a whole conversation about where that religious divide comes from. It comes from the colonialism of the British rule of India for like over 200 years. But besides that, yeah, I think like Sikhism was founded to be that safe space, to be accepting and open to all people, like you mentioned. And I really like how you pointed out that's not in the Indian government's ideology at all. So it makes sense if you take a step back why things are happening and unfolding like they are now. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's a divide and conquer kind of based on Western ideologies. And Sikhi is all about unity and equality. As one fun fact to mention, I think when Sikhs did have, um, you had mentioned British colonialism was in India for upwards of 200 years. They were unable to penetrate Punjab for 115 or so of those 200 years. So they were unable to get into Punjab. Punjab was only occupied for a bit over 90 years. And so the British were unable to penetrate that. And it's because, you know, at that point they had their own kingdom. Um, Yeah. And I also really liked how you pointed out, like you can see the, even the origins and the ideologies and the values that the Sikh culture has, you can see that throughout history and also even now. Like I was, I think I was listening to a podcast and it was sharing about the large percent of Sikh individuals that go and protest and fight for human rights that don't even impact them directly, like throughout history. They've just been going out there and putting themselves on the front line to fight for all people. Um, And I I really like that point that you brought up. I think it sets up a good context as well. So let's just dive into what is going on with the farm legislation in India and what is the intention behind these laws? The farming legislation in India, uh, there was three bills passed in September of 2020 that make it so that the central government is eliminating the guaranteed price that farmers will get for a lot of their crops. At this current moment, even before the farmer bills, Punjab had the highest rates of farmer suicide in the world. And that is because they were unable to pay off a lot of their debts. They would have to lease machinery. They would have to buy fertilizers. They would have to do X, Y, and Z to make sure that they had a crop yield. And a lot of times that crop yield was not sufficient for them to pay their debts. And again, there's unregulated debts in Punjab. Here in, at least in the United States, there's regulated so that whoever you borrow money from, there's a cap on the interest rate that you have to pay them back. That is non-existent in Punjab. So the farmers of Punjab are borrowing money because they absolutely have to, because farming is their livelihood. They borrow money at unregulated interest rates. They're unable to pay back the payments on those. And so they're you know, taking their own lives to avoid that. So even before these farmer bills, that was the case. It had the highest rates in the world. So now with these farmer bills, what happens is now you're saying that corporations can come in and they have, you know, 100 acre storage yards. And so a farmer, a small farmer, 85% of Punjab is small farmers, or is it 80%? Something in, so, something very high. And so they own two to three acres of land. They're farming that two to three acres of land. They're selling it in the local markets, and they're making ends meet. With the corporate structures coming in, these corporations can say, okay, you're trying to sell me two tons of wheat. I'm not going to buy it right now. At that point, the farmer says, I'll take whatever rate you're willing to give me or I'll have to burn my crop. It's, it goes to waste. So at that point, they are completely dictated by what the corporations are willing to give them. And that often does not make ends meet. Again, repeating that cycle of the farmers going farther into debt and having to sell their land to these larger corporations to pay off that debt. So as the farmers in Punjab and around India are seeing it, these farm bills were enacted in a way so that the farmer will be unable to pay his debts or her debts. And 
they will be forced to sell that land. So the farmers are seeing this as a direct hand of the Indian government and the billionaire class and the corporations onto their land. And Punjab, as we know it, will be will be non-existent in a period of four to five years because corporations will take over that land. The second thing, especially in Punjab with the six, is the Indian government has made it so that no industry, no farming related industry as far as plants. So if I take tomatoes and I make ketchup with them, I make sure that ketchup plant is in a different state. So now these farmers are so reliant on agriculture, they have no other industry and it's been strategically put this way. So it's been strategically so that this is a one industry based state. And so if we can constrict that industry, we can constrict the state and who resides in the state, it's six and it's Punjabis. So in a, in a roundabout way, these laws are a way for the government to take away land from the smaller farmers and line the pocket of the billionaires, of the Ambanis and the Adanis and the people that have a means to, to store that. So once you take away government regulations from that, it's not like Punjab was in a great state before these farmer bills, I think, and that's probably something that we'll get into. But these farm bills are just like a nail in the coffin. It's you were already dying and we're just going to close it out for you. And that's why we're seeing the largest protest in human history. Exactly. Yeah. And like if we go back in history, because we can't really talk about these farmer bills without also talking about historical events that kind of led to it as well. So I know the Green Revolution was kind of like the catalyst that started all of this. And so if you learn more about the Green Revolution, it ties into what you were speaking of, how Punjab and India already had an, an already flawed agricultural system. So if you think about it through that lens, it kind of makes sense why these farmer bills was pushed by the Indian government, because they were already on that path. Um, so I like that you brought that up and pointed attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. The Green Revolution um, was sold as this modern and, you know, Punjab is now the breadbasket of India and they feed the whole country. And Punjabi farmers being hardworking, patient people, they were just like, you know what, you're giving us this crop, we're going to grow it for you. And it turns out all along that this was just a very kind of sadistic manipulation of their talents and, and of their work ethic. And we're seeing it now that they're on the brink of extinction, how all of these things added up. And this is, again, specifically to the farmer bills, the historical context of the sick oppression and suppression and genocide continues. But again, this is that nail in the coffin. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like the more that we're speaking about this, the more I'm like thinking about how India is trying to turn itself into a capitalist society and maybe it already has. Um, and like we were speaking on in the beginning of this conversation, that does not reflect the cultural values of the South Asian Indian community at all. Like the South Asian community is like all about cultural values and community and putting your neighbors and community first and thinking about others around you and their well-being. And those are like the roots of our culture. And the, the government is not it's like the total opposite of that, like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I, I think capitalism can work if uh, the industries were somewhat diversified. But if you've spent the last 70 years saying Punjab is the breadbasket and we're not going to implement any infrastructure in Punjab that could, you know, the tech industry is now in South India. It was meant to be in Punjab because the inventor of a lot of, you know, fiber optics and these different things made the proposal to the Indian government that I'm a Punjabi Sikh man myself 
I want these industries to be within Punjab. And because of whatever reasons, they made it so difficult that he took those industries to South India. And now South India is having all these, you know, technological advances and sending everyone all over the world on work visas. And again, if we trace it back, these things were meant to be in Punjab. And it was very systematically manipulated. No industries, no tech. And Punjab is just simply an agriculturally based state. So that's why capitalism becomes problematic. There's no diversification. Exactly. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like we're already seeing farmers land disappear. We're already seeing the impact of this. And you said like in four to five years, all of that could literally disappear. So it's kind of like makes me question, doesn't the Indian government realize that the farmers are the backbone of the country and there's literally no food without the farmers. So I just don't, I just don't understand that concept. Well, what happens when the billionaire class comes in, they can take over the land and they can produce crops and make it much more uniform and, and make it in that way. But if you're a government, your laws are supposed to benefit the society. And if the society is protesting, those laws should be repealed. It doesn't get much more complicated than that. And if you're creating laws that you're seeing opposition to internationally within your own country, you're seeing millions protesting, then that's not a law that should exist. But again, the billionaires have a lot of sway and the billionaires are totally tied with the prime minister of India. And so it gets hard to repeal something that you made number one haphazardly without any consultation to a single farmer. And it's clearly to benefit a very select number of people. So I think, yeah, if there's no farmers, there's no food. But with the billionaires coming in, they'll find a way to create more food, but it's going to be the ex at the expense of the everyday person. And that's why we're seeing this protest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for, for clarifying that. And we see this pattern around the world, too, with billionaires. I know it's coming up a year now that we've been in this global pandemic. And I was reading something about like how many billionaires emerged during the pandemic alone. So we see this around the world, even in America, even in all countries, I would say. Um, and the fact that these farmer legislation bills were passed during a, a global pandemic, that just like adds to the conversation. And also, um, I know that the Indian government didn't even collaborate with farmers when creating this law, when, when creating these laws, which I think is like very problematic in and of itself. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's flawed all the way around. It doesn't take much research or digging to figure out the real intention of these bills. Um, and so there's millions on the streets of Delhi right now sleeping in tractors, under trucks, in rain or shine. They're like, Corona may or may not kill us, but these farm bills are going to. So we'll take the chance. Exactly. Yeah. And I know I've been hearing a lot about Kulsa aid. So what is Kulsa aid and how does it relate to everything we're speaking on today? Yeah, absolutely. Kulsa aid is a nonprofit organization that's existed for coming up on 22 years now. And they've been all over the world in war-torn countries. They've been in countries that have been subject to national natural disasters. They were in the Philippines for a typhoon. They were in the on the borders of Syria feeding people. They were in the Congo. They've been all over the world. And how, so Kalsa Aid is now 
at the farmers protest feeding and, and, you know, taking care of everyone that's protesting. So again, the agenda of manipulation from the Indian government, the CEO of Khalsa Aid, Ravinder Singh, is an avid supporter of Sanjanal Singh Pindrawale, who has been labeled a terrorist, um, as the Indian government tends to do with any critics, who's been labeled a terrorist to the Indian government. So what they're trying to point out is that Ravinder Singh now has some hidden agenda. He's supporting this quote-unquote terrorist, so he must be there for some hidden agenda. But that negates the past 21 years that he's been all over the world feeding people. And so he even came up with a comedic like video, like, you guys better watch out for me. Am I in a, am I in a training camp? Nope, I'm in a warehouse. There's tons of food here. Look out for me. I might come to your house and feed you. So that was like his comedic outtake on how laughable it is for the Indian government to suspect. And and so this person, individual that they pointed out, he, he has tweeted in support of Sanjanal Singh Pindrawale, who was an avid critic of the Indian government. He called them out multiple times. He actually created one of the largest movements back um, from a period of like early 70s to 1984 when he was killed by the Indian government. So this person pushed for the Anandpur Sahib resolution, which is a, 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 a document that, you know, implements farmers' rights. It says farmers shouldn't have to pay debts on their machinery. Farmers uh, need more autonomy. So these documents and these individuals were painted in such a militant, extremist, terrorist-like light that since they own all the media, the government has implemented this. The population of India thinks a certain way about certain individuals. And in the West, they think a certain way about certain individuals. So anytime you have a Khalsa aid Ravinder Singh saying, no, this guy was not a terrorist. He was just a critic. And you took 100,000 tanks and soldiers and whatever machinery you had, and you attacked this individual and, and the people he was with and killed him in what is Operation Blue Star, the largest operation where there was no foreign media presence. All foreign media was picked up and taken out of the state on buses. So it's the most unreported uh, kind of heinous crimes, I, I would say, in the history of the world. And it's the most underreported. So Khalsa Aid is in support of that individual, has tweeted in support of that individual multiple times. So the Indian government is now trying to spin it and say, Ravi Singh from Khalsa Aid may also be a terrorist. His organization may be extreme. So... Again, it's it's this uh, cycle of misinformation, disinformation that the the media, Indian media, continues to send out into the public. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that leads us um, directly into the next question: Is what role does the media play with these events? And I know that you already spoke on that a little bit, but if you want to dive into that a little bit further, and also I just want to mention that Khalsa Aid is a human rights organization and they're doing great work. So I will include a link in the episode notes. If you have the means, please donate and support them. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there too before we dive further into the, the media conversation. Sure, yeah, thank you for doing that. I think um, every dollar given to Khalsa Aid is is put towards a good cause and their, their history speaks to that. And um, their operations speak to that as well. Um, but getting to the media, the media is very big um, in creating a narrative. And so 
six have been labeled terrorists for decades now within the Indian media, um, especially specific six um, that have been open critics and have said, you know, we challenge your genocide, we challenge your oppression. And so they paint them in this militant extremist light. They say, you know, this person is a terrorist. This person is, he's creating problems for, uh, for, the, for the peace in the region. However, the government is the one being violent. Um, there was an interview that I watched recently between an Indian news reporter and one of the people in the farmers' protest, um, Deep Sidhu. And he said, who is being violent? It is the state that is inf inflicting violence on, on the people. So it's state terrorism. And she stopped him and she said, um, are you using that word responsibly, state terrorism? Because she actually wanted him to back out from that and say the state is not inflicting terrorism. But he doubled down and he said, they are the ones being violent. So those that oppose them, the court systems don't work. The judicial system doesn't work. Prime Minister right now, Narendra Modi, he has an eyewitness that, that says, you know, I killed this many people and I was going to trial for it. And Narendra Modi got my judges changed three times. He had the political manipulation to change the judges. So the, the court system, the judicial system is compromised. So when you're inflicting a genocide against a certain number of people, either those people roll over and say, go ahead and kill us, or they fight back, which has been the heritage of six. And so when those people fight back, they're labeled as terrorists, they're labeled as extremists and militants, and some of them continue to be in Indian jails even today. So again, relating this back to the media, this is all the Indian media created narrative. Ambani who is a billionaire in India, who was the richest man in Asia until about last week when his stock started dropping a little bit. He owns the Network 18 group, and they have ties with, you know, everyone, even in the States, um, the Nickelodeons, the CNNs, you know, everyone. So he has boasted that he has upward of 700 million viewers in India alone. So in a population of 1.3 billion, if you have 700 million people that you are able to influence with your politics, with your uh, disinformation, really, you can get them to believe pretty much anything. It's this age in social media where people are able to record and a video can go viral saying, you know what, these people are fighting state terrorism. They're not terrorists themselves. They're fighting state terrorism. And if the state doesn't want to produce opposition, then they should stop creating legislation or stop implementing laws that is oppositional. And you won't have anyone that's fighting for their freedom. So I've always related it to the analogy that like a fish needs water so badly that even when you kill it and eat it, you get thirsty. Because even in its death, a fish continues to need water. And, and that is the way that freedom has been for six. Either they are free or they're fighting for their freedom. There's no in-between. There's no rollover and let the government roll over me. And they've, they've always been rebels or they've been free. So this ties into Khalsa aid. This ties into a media. The media narrative is very dangerous and it's leaking over into the Western worlds. And there's different ways that the, the media will try to spin it. But people that, have, that are eyewitnesses to it or that have experienced it um, will definitely speak otherwise. There's a large contrast between people that have experienced state terrorism and what the Indian media's narrative states. So that contrast continues. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for breaking that down. And we've seen this throughout history with media. 
portraying people that are fighting for their human rights and social justice issues, portraying them as terrorists or violent. We've seen that across nations. We've seen that in America, in the U.S. We saw that this past summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, just putting things into context with uh, for the listeners. Like, we saw that literally this summer, um, the media, the, even the U.S. media portraying Black Lives Matter Matters protesters as violent terrorists, all this stuff. Um, and then, you know, when white supremacy, when they do the same thing with the government, it's not called terrorism. So, um, right. yeah, I just wanted to, like, relate that, like, there's very similar patterns that we've seen with the media across all cultures, across all nations. And it's like a very strategic tool used by fascism itself. And I think, like, I really like how you brought up Modi, because, like, the prime minister of India, Modi, he's definitely, like, a fascist. Like, I would say, like, him and Trump, there's, like, a lot of parallels with their strategies as well. Um, and that could be, I know that could be, like, a whole other podcast episode, but I like how you yeah. brought attention to that, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and um, I know that you did mention that there's a very high suicide crisis amongst farmers in Punjab and I think that is a public health crisis the amount of suicides that we've seen across history but even just recently alone it is a lot and I don't know the exact numbers um I don't know if you do but I do know it is an enormous amount and I would literally call that a public health crisis and we do see how the intergenerational traumas the political climate all impacts the mental health of not only Sikhs and Punjabis, but other South Asians and, and others as well. So um, if you want to speak more to, to the mental health aspect as well. Yeah, uh, mental health actually ties in in a couple ways. Number one is the obvious suicide, farmer suicide crisis that we see. You know, um, I think I don't I can't be quoted on this, but I think between 2000 and 2015, upwards of 20,000 farmers had you know, taken their own lives, had died by suicide. So that is a tribute to kind of their stresses related to unregulated debts, related to government policies, specifically and strategically targeting them. So that is that. As far as um, a mental health crisis, though, I would say that the genocide and that the Indian government has implemented on six in Punjab has affected whether you're living there or whether even if you've moved abroad, a lot of people that have come into the States or Canada or into into Europe have put political asylum on their visas. And that is very problematic. If you're leaving a country under political asylum, you're telling a country that we are leaving because we are seeking just well-being. We're seeking safety. And we're leaving India under political asylum because our lives are under attack in the Indian system. So those people have been affected so deeply and, and the government has made it such a taboo for you to speak against them that the moment you are become a critic of them, the moment you're even a human rights activist and you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to oppose you at all. I'm just going to look at the numbers. There was an activist just once in Kalra back in the early 90s. 
he set out to calculate how many people the Indian government had killed or at least had burned illegally. So he went to crematoriums. He divided the number of logs that the crematorium had burned compared to the number of bodies that it would require, that those bodies would require that many logs. So let's say it's 10 per body. So he divided that number that they had and compared it with the official numbers that they had. And he discovered that a minimum of 20,000, 25,000 people had been killed by the Indian government and they were unidentified. And those, and those sick youth, those young men had been picked up by the Indian government and disappeared. And this individual, just once in Canada, who did this research was picked up by the Indian government while he was washing his car in 1995. And he himself was also killed and thrown into a canal. And so when the government is that genocidal, and when the government is inflicting that much pain, there is a certain sense of fear that comes with that. And it's an unspoken fear that tends to bubble up when it's times like this, when there's a farmer's protest and hundreds and thousands and millions of people are showing up saying, you know, this is about farmer bills, but this is also about the past 40 years that our people have been subject to a genocide. And we're here because our heritage tells us to be here. We're here because, you know, every ounce of us tells us that we need to rebel. And so those people, I can say from my parents' generation, some of them choose not to tell their kids about this whole conflict that occurred in Punjab because they fear that if we were to inform our children about these conflicts, then our children will want to do something about that and the Indian government will then inflict that terror on them. So out of safety, there's a whole mental health aspect related to that. Just the fear of being a critic. And the Indian government has created a, a culture and a society of Either you fall in line or you will be humiliated. You'll, you know, your family members will be harassed. You can be picked up and killed. And that's the, the fear that generations have lived with. And that's pain and a mental health aspect of the fear that they bring with them to Western countries. So I have tons of friends who were like, you know, this is the first time hearing about it. But to me, I'm like, your parents fleed Punjab fleed India under political asylum. And the fact that they were fleeing, it was for a reason. You have no idea about that. So that itself is like a hidden mental health aspect of this whole issue that is totally unaddressed. But that's being put on the back burner because the fight is for survival. The fight is for religious freedom. It's for cultural freedom. It's for, you know, just fighting against the Indian government's genocide. And the narrative supports that genocide. The army is under the direct control of the central government who is inflicting a genocide. So it's, it's this whole cycle that just continues to steamroll anything in its path. And yeah, I think it's great that we talked about mental health because this aspect that I'm telling you about now is has been mentioned, but hasn't been brought to the forefront in any substantial way. And I think it's time that, you know, people start addressing that there is a generational trauma that comes with the fear of the Indian government. As somebody that's going into the mental health profession, I'm just like sitting with everything you shared and all I can think about is all of the trauma, multi-generational trauma, intergenerational trauma that, you know, this population has experienced for so long and how that manifests even today. And even in their children who grew up in Western culture, 
even though they haven't actually experienced this trauma themselves, just hearing that somebody you know, or just even hearing somebody went through that trauma can also be a form of trauma itself. And yeah, I think also it's important to mention like systemic oppression is also a form of trauma. And um, scientifically that has shown to, to be a form of trauma as well. I really like how you pointed out that we cannot separate the social justice issues from the mental health issues at all. Um, I also really like how you pointed out that to take care of your mental health requires access and it's a privilege. I really wish that everyone had access to it. I think everybody ha should have the right to have access to take care of their mental health, but that's not the way our society is structured. And we see that um, with this, what we're talking about as well. So it's like with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like how can you even get to a place where you want to work on your mental health and unpack that when you don't even have your basic survival necessities. So I really like how you called attention to that because like we could put all the therapists in the world in India right now and that that could maybe help a little bit, but if we don't address the systemic oppression and issues, this will still keep going on and all the amount of therapists and mental health treatment will not help. Yeah, we say PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder, but there will be no post because it's ongoing. And so it will just be a traumatic stress disorder. So you can deal with issues as they come as therapists and mental health professionals. But again, yeah, unless you address the mental health and the systemic oppression that exists for the people there, uh, you'll never get to the root of the issue. You'll just be dealing with the symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. And we know that intergenerational trauma and all the traumas that we're speaking of, it can manifest in so many different ways. It can manifest in anxiety, in depression and substance use issues and in PTSD and also other mental health conditions and in extreme circumstances, suicide. And that brings us back to what we were talking about as well. So um, I like how you also talked about this like fear that the Indian government instills in people and also this gaslighting, you know, like gaslighting is when someone goes through something and then another person just denies and denies and denies. And then the other person starts to kind of go crazy a little bit like, am I really or like what's going on, you know, and we know that gaslighting can also contribute to um, anxiety and, and low self-esteem and depression and, and all these other mental health conditions as well. So, yeah, I, really yeah, I think the the example i had given you was i think a prime example of gaslighting is the indian government inflicting state terrorism and the moment someone brings it up they're like are you using that word you know carefully are you are you responsible for that term you're using so they're making you hesitate from even acknowledging that it exists never mind you know correcting the issue itself just the acknowledgement is an issue i think that is a prime example of something that's been going on for generations for six and if for Punjabis and for a lot of minority groups, it's we believe a certain way, this is what happened. And then it's the government telling you that isn't what happened. And if you don't believe otherwise, then there's a whole fear aspect that there's a whole pain aspect that we can inflict. So it's a very dictatorial, very authoritarian way of governing, which is what Sikhs have rebelled against. Even before India, even from inception, they have been under attack since their creation back in the 1400s, whether it's from the Mughal rulers, whether it's from now, it's the Indian government. So which is why there's 
articles saying that this isn't the first time that Sikhs have faced oppression. This isn't the first time that they have fought oppression. It ties back to their lineage. It ties back to their heritage. So we're seeing these videos of Punjabi Sikhs and people from other places just tearing apart barricades and dismissing the police that is standing in front of them to stop them from what is supposed to be a democratically guaranteed right of peaceful protest. All they're doing is marching to the state capitol. And the government actually rips 10 feet deep into um, the national highways so that the protesters can't finish their march, so they can't get there. So when we see these videos of protesters ignoring all the government's precautions and continuing to march, just know that it's not something that came up all of a sudden. It's a part of a, a heritage and it's a part of, of a lineage of rebels, really, of fighters that are saying we can't take oppression just lying down. Exactly. Yeah, thank you for speaking on that. And I also want to reiterate something I said earlier. I just want to like really emphasize it that a person of color doesn't have to directly experience racism to suffer from mental health problems. Even just like witnessing or hearing about racism and race-based violence can negatively impact one's mental health. So if you're listening to this, I know it might be pretty heavy, the things that we're discussing. So I also just want to urge listeners to please take care of themselves and exercise that self-care while they're listening um, and take breaks if you need to. But yeah, I really appreciate you Uh, speaking on the mental health aspect too. Um, I think that's really important. And also like, how can people get involved? How can people help if listeners want to donate, if they want to get involved themselves and learn more? What do you suggest for them? Uh, There's a couple of ways. Number one is since the community itself and the world really is dealing with suppression from the larger social media platforms. I think just circulating relevant information is one of the sharpest tools that you have in your tool belt. And it's because the suppressive entities like the Indian governments and the the Facebooks and the WhatsApps and and all these people, they can only they only have so much staff. They only have so much funding. Now if the movement is upwards of millions of people, they can't suppress every voice short of eliminating that social platform to begin with. So the moment you start to circulate information, whether it be posting it to your story or creating a post about it or just screenshotting it and emailing or texting people, all these are tools in your tool belt. So circulating information in an age of information suppression is very, very effective. Donation-wise, you can donate to Kalsa Aid. You can just Google farmers' protests. And again, um, in my research, when I'm looking up genocidal events in Indian history, the first 10 articles will be by Indian newspapers. And they'll say, no, it wasn't really that bad, or the gaslighting we talked about, or this was the reason it happened. In 1984, actually, the Indian government painted red X's on outsides of Sikh residences and businesses and mobs came the next day and they were given three days to inflict any kind of violence that they wanted. So it was very organized. And the the leader of the party at that time, Rajiv Gandhi, said, these are the reasons that this violence was justified. 
So this is what happens when the narrative and the media is standing with you. You can justify outright just absurd violence. And so when you're talking about getting involved, this is the entities that the public is kind of dealing with. And it's not just in India. It's, I mean, the United States was formed on the genocide and the killing of millions of Native Americans. And it's, it's you know, maybe a chapter that we study in our history books, but that is the basis of this country as well. So genocides aren't specific to a certain region or a certain people. We're addressing farmers' protests in this podcast, so that's why we're talking mainly about Punjabi Sikhs and everyone else that's protesting. But genocides, again, aren't exclusive to any region or people. So they're all over the world. The more educated we are about the reasons that they happen, the better equipped we will be to deal with them. If we know that the narrative is an issue, if we know that government policies are an issue, how do we address that? And that'll get addressed through the circulation of this information. Donation-wise, I would say Kalsa Aid is great. I've donated to them multiple, multiple times, and I encourage everyone to do it um, because they're there in the farmers' protests right now, but in a few months, they may be in a different region of the world that needs support, that needs help. After natural disasters, earthquakes, typhoons, tsunamis, you know, they're there on the front lines risking their lives for the support of humanity. And so that's one organization that I would recommend. Um, there are tons of organizations. Just Google farmers protests. Hopefully, I'm fingers crossed, you can find a reputable source that will help you donate to the right causes. Do a little bit of due diligence. Look through the articles. If they're obviously biased, then maybe ignore them and find a different source. But yeah, I mean, social media to some extent is helpful. There are pages that you can follow, which I'm sure you'll address, but there's pages that you can follow that where you can find the truth. And if not, if you don't feel it's the truth, at least you can question and get a response. It's not just floating out there. So yeah, uh, just do your due diligence and hopefully you can find a good, good place to donate. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And I think awareness is definitely a great first step. And also we know that with all activism, action is really what puts that change out there. So awareness and action are really important. So to all listeners, you can refer to the episode notes. I'll have different Instagram accounts, including Jot's Instagram account and other ones that I personally have gotten awareness from and also different places that you can donate to. So thank you for mentioning those. And I know that this conversation was very powerful and I know that it was a bit heavy at times, but I really appreciate you sitting down with me and discussing this. So before we wrap up, is there any last thoughts you wanna leave with the listeners? Yeah, I mean, if I could try to summarize everything I said, it's that the farmers protests are the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Indian oppression, when it comes to their history between the government and Sikhs and Punjab specifically. So this is a farmer's protest, and that is an issue that is at the forefront. But just know that the opposition comes from a heritage, and it, the opposition against the government comes from a lineage of rebels and social activists that will not lie down in the face of oppression. So it's a small it's again like the tip of the iceberg when we talk about the titanic the iceberg was really below the surface and that's kind of what it is with this issue as well exactly yeah and thank you for those last words and also where can people find you best if they want to look you up on social media and all that how can they do so 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so my Instagram handle is two underscores and then Prabhjot Singh, P-R-A-B-H-J-O-T Singh, S-I-N-G-H. I have a Twitter account as well, which I just started during the farmers protest. So there's not much on there, but I, I tweet every once in a while. The handle on that is Dr. Singh, D-O-C-T-O-R, last name S-I-N-G-H, and then there's another H. So Dr. Singh with two H's. There's a lot of pages on Instagram where you can find information about these specifically. There's Sick Expo on Instagram. So it's at Sick S-I-K-H. Expo, E-X-P-O, and then donations. We already talked about donating to Kalsa Aid, and if not, finding some sort of other reputable sources that you can donate to would be best. But yeah, at least I'm most active on my Instagram for now if I don't get blocked or suppressed in any other way. And there's more information to come on there as far as how the farmer protests are specifically the tip of the iceberg and the events that kind of led to it and will help you understand a little bit more of a comprehensive picture. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Everyone go follow Prabhjot and show him some support. And I just want to thank you again, Prabhjot, for being here and and sharing your insight with us today. So I always say the toughest conversations are sometimes the most necessary. And I feel like this applies to our conversation today. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I know some of the stuff I discussed is not stuff that we discuss on a daily basis. And I know a lot of the a lot of the facts make us uncomfortable sometimes. But as uncomfortable as they make us, they are the reality for someone else. There is, you know, thousands of mothers out there waiting for their sons to come home that may never come home or will never come home. So as uncomfortable as it makes us, they are living this. So the least we can do is at least address it. And I think podcasts like yours um, help raise that awareness uh, in a way that, you know, some people may never have been able to 15 years ago. So it's great that, you know, activists have these platforms where not everything has to go through mainstream media. It can come from other places as well. So I think you're fulfilling a very important role in in the the reality of situations worldwide. Exactly. Thank you. And likewise, I could say exactly the same thing to you. So thank you for that. All right. Thank you so much for having me. As always, I thank you for listening and staying tuned. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with the people in your life. I would also really appreciate if you would subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, give it a five-star rating, and leave a good review mentioning what you like about the podcast. You can also follow the Instagram for updates at SynergyCast, and I have also included that in the episode notes. I have now a new feature, which is a voice memo feature, which I am very excited about. So if you would like to send in your thoughts and your feelings or your personal experiences, feel free to record a voice memo and send it my way. I would love to include your voice in the next podcast episodes. Lastly, if you are willing and able, there is another new feature where you can donate however much money you want to help support Synergy Cast financially. If you do choose to donate, the money would help me pay for several things. It would help me pay for myself, my own energies, my own efforts, and also the money would help pay my future guests 
especially people of color, for their time, since I believe it is very important to compensate people of color, especially for their time and energy, since many BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, have a history of being taken advantage of and underpaid or not paid at all for their efforts. So any and all ways you choose to support would be very much appreciated. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.